Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's pin is one that says, count every vote. And that's because we're going to be talking to our guest about the Electoral College and how it could possibly lead to not counting every vote and to someone who wins the popular vote actually losing and not being elected president. As we record this episode of iGen Politics, a lot of facts are very clear and still being unraveled. It's clear that Donald Trump played a direct role in inciting a mob to storm the Capitol under the pretense that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen from him. Trump also challenged the results in courts in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and other states. Five dozen lawsuits were filed and all but one were lost by Trump, and that was an unimportant technicality. When those legal means failed, Trump turned to violence and illegal means. We just saw this week when we're recording this episode, we learned that Trump's lawyers gained access to voting machines in Georgia, Nevada, and Michigan, and who knows where else that we haven't yet discovered. Whether the access machines can ever be used again is open to question. While democracy has so far survived, Trump and his allies have tested its limits. In this episode, we aren't going to explore the big lie, the violence of January 6th, the newest revelations about the voting machine, or even the search of Mar-a-Lago. Instead, we are going to look at one law that gave Trump potential arguments for some of the ways he sought to undo the results of the popular vote the fake electors, the pressure on Vice President Pence, and on state legislatures to take action to change the outcome. These arguments are more dangerous today than they were after the November 2020 election because many election deniers have won Republican primaries in key states as secretaries of state. We will focus on those, and we will focus on something that does not receive as much attention as it should the Electoral College. What is it? Is it unfair? And what if any reforms are needed and possible to prevent any future attempts to undo the votes as they are actually cast? We'll talk to our guest, Kate Shaw, constitutional law scholar, professor of law at Cardozo School of Law in New York City, about these pressing questions and call on her experience as a Supreme Court clerk and scholar to talk about this last term of the court. Previously, Kate worked at the White House uh, Counsel's Office as a special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president. She also clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens of the U.S. Supreme Court and Judge Richard Posner of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Kate is also a contributor for ABC News and co-host of a podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it, and that's called Strict Scrutiny. She also co-hosts this with Melissa Murray and Leah Lippman, who were both previous guests on iGen Politics. So we have the full strict scrutiny cast on this show. Kate graduated magna cum laude from Brown University and Northwestern Law School, and like Jill and me, is a Chicago native. For the sake of full disclosure, Kate is the daughter of Andy Shaw, an award-winning Chicago journalist and former president of the Better Government Association, where I serve as a board member and where Victor interned last summer. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us today. It's a real honor to meet you. 
I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking. I want to start our conversation today on a topic of great concern to me, and it's something that should be of concern to all Americans, especially given the events following the November elections. And you wrote a great piece in The Atlantic titled The Other Cause of January 6th, which explains the role of the Electoral College in enabling Trump to pursue overturning the will of the voters. Um, I, I want to read something that you wrote in the very beginning of your article, which I thought just brilliantly set the table for this discussion. You said, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump himself, these people all bear some responsibility for the events of January 6, 2021. But there is another contributing factor, an institution, not a person, whose role is regularly overlooked and that deserves a focus in the ongoing January 6 committee hearings, the Electoral College. The Electoral College isn't responsible for President Trump's efforts to remain in office despite his clear loss, but it was integral to Trump's strategy, and it has everything to do with how close he came to success. So take it from there, Kate. I think that there's a lot in, of meat in that that can help us understand why that's so important. Um, sure, Jill, I'm happy to do that. So, you know, I do think that it's important as this committee and the country reckons with what happened on January 6th, how to head off the possibility of a recurrence, to focus not just on, you know, the individual players who were, you know, active in participating in and, you know, promoting the what became the attack of January 6th, but also institutions and structures that are really implicated in it. And I think kind of chief among them is the Electoral College. Um, so that is, you know, our really anachronistic system of presidential selection, right? People probably know we don't just you know, elect a president in a national popular election in which the person who gets the most votes becomes the president. Instead, we have this convoluted scheme set forth in the Constitution and then in several federal statutes. Uh, you know, the whole system is something that we refer to as the Electoral College, although that's actually not a phrase that appears in the Constitution. But it's a complicated sch scheme in which each state, right, has a certain number of electoral votes that corresponds to that state's allocation of seats in the House and in the Senate. And the way every state except for Maine and Nebraska right now approach allocating their electors is that whoever wins the most votes in that state gets all of the state's electoral college votes. Um, Maine and Nebraska do it somewhat differently. They, you know, do essentially a, a district system in which the, the, the winner in each congressional district um, gets an electoral vote corresponding to that congressional district. And then there's another um, vote allotted to the statewide winner. But the basic scheme in all of the states is that, you know, whoever wins in the state gets all of the electoral college votes. And so what this means is that it is possible to win a majority of electoral votes, but actually to lose the national popular vote. And that has happened a number of times in our history. It happened, of course, in 2016. It came dangerously close to happening in 2020. You know, although people probably know that Biden won a very significant national popular victory over Trump, something like 7 million votes, um, and won pretty handily in the electoral college, 306 to 232, if there had been just 44,000 additional Trump votes cast across Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin, 
that would have resulted in a tie in the Electoral College, which would have thrown the election to the House, which voting by state delegation would almost certainly have handed Donald Trump the presidency. So sorry, that's a long kind of overview of the Electoral College. But as this description, I think, makes clear, it's a really complicated scheme that contains a number of different points at which an actor determined to subvert democracy and the outcome of the election can essentially exploit weaknesses and ambiguities, again, in both the constitutional structure and the statutes that govern all of this, um, in order to essentially convert loss into victory. So the complexity and some of the specifics of the scheme itself, I think, provided a lot of opportunities for Trump and Trump allies to essentially seek to meddle with the outcome of the election. And, you know, if all that had happened was Trump had lost by 7 million votes, I'm not sure he would have conceded gracefully and departed the White House. But any post-election strategy would have looked very, very different than this multi-step, multi-prong effort launched in courts and in state legislatures and eventually in Congress, all essentially cloaked in the kind of veneer of, well, law and legal process, all just part of this scheme, or all rather, all just part of this kind of electoral college process. Um, and so I think that that actually goes a long way to explaining sort of why the November to January and then January 6th period looked the way it did. And January 6th itself is the last step in this complicated process by which a candidate becomes the president. And it's no accident that that, of course, the last stage in the electoral process is where the focus essentially turned once all of the other efforts had failed. Right. And we're going to go deeper into each of those elements because I think this is so crucial to the future of our democracy, that I want our listeners to really understand what this means and why amendments to this process are so important and what are the possible amendments. And I, we're gonna to talk to you about that because what you've just described, of course, flies in the face of common sense. I mean, everybody thinks when they vote that the winner should be the person they vote for if that person wins the majority of votes. but. We've seen Gore and Hillary Clinton both win more votes than the person who actually was inaugurated uh, in January following the election. And that's why it's such a current, and, and as you point out, could have happened this year with a swing of not that much. I mean, 44,000 out of, you know, hundreds of millions of people, that's like, it's it's I, I can't do statistics in my head, but it's a small statistic, right? So we, we need to keep that in mind. And I, I think your explanation of the Electoral College really helps us. Um, but the one thing I don't get and and is why do we even have this? What was the reason this was put into the Constitution to begin with? Um, I assume it was before there was ever any thought of the this huge disparity we would have between. Wyoming and California, New York and name any other state. Um, but what was the purpose and, and how can we handle whatever that purpose was in a way that doesn't affect people feeling like they are disenfranchised? Yeah, so in terms of sort of why we have the Electoral College as a mechanism of presidential selection, you know, I think there are 
sort of there's evidence in the historical record to support a number of distinct origin stories. I don't think we know for sure. I think one both possibility and dynamic that was certainly present at the Constitutional Convention was an elitist fear of too much democracy, right? A perceived need to create a body that would mediate between the public and this important process of choosing the chief executive. So, you know, this at least in theory, sort of group of electors who would exercise a degree of independent judgment in order to select the president. So that, I think, was was one dynamic at play. Um, another was, you know, to maximize slave state power. So there was a, a, a desire to maximize the power of states that were already in the South benefited by virtue of the congressional um, apportionment scheme, right, which essentially allowed slave states to count as part of their population, individuals who obviously were legally disenfranchised from participating, and that counting for purposes of congressional representation was replicated in the allocation of seats in the Electoral College. Um, there's also, I think, a possibility that this was just like a byproduct of delegate exhaustion. So I've looked at the records, um, both some primary sources and a lot of secondary sources, and the Constitutional Convention really struggled to try to figure out how to do presidential selection. Um, there was talk of state legislatures choosing the president, of Congress choosing the president, um, obviously questions of a plural versus a unitary executive. And they kind of punted over the course of the summer as they're, you know, in Philadelphia drafting the Constitution. And I think maybe just kind of ran out of time. And this was an idea that had been surfaced earlier in the summer. And it's at the very 11th hour, they sort of put together this scheme in which this, again, you know, group of individuals will essentially stand between the public and the president and make the selection. Um, and very quickly after the drafting of the Constitution, the kind of post hoc spinning began. And that narrative that I just ended on, that this was really about kind of, you know, wise statesmen who would basically ensure that, say, a demagogue never seized power um, and that only the fittest individual would ever be selected president, that this was what the college was really about. That's part of the mythology of the Electoral College, but it's not necessarily the reason that the Electoral College was put into the Constitution. But again, quickly the spinning begins. The Federalist Papers kind of talk about this function of the Electoral College. But it's not ever maybe in the first or second election, but very quickly it becomes the case that these electors are not actually exercising independent judgment. They are essentially just voting the way the population of the states in which they sit have told them to vote. So any kind of intermediating function that we might think the Electoral College might serve, you know, has long since ceased to be an active and live part of the system. And instead, it's just kind of this, as you said at the outset, Jill, you know, in complete counterintuitive inversion of basic democratic instincts and impulses in every election in our lives, the person who gets the most votes wins, except for the most important one, right, which is the election of the president. And there's not a very good reason that the historical record provides that even at the outset, the framers would have adopted this. And there certainly isn't any enduring good reason to retain the system today. Kate, you have actually terrified me because <laughs> hearing you say it was intended to be the adult in the room, to mediate, to be the wise judge of who should and shouldn't be, despite how people vote. And while I remain shocked at how many people actually selected Donald Trump as their candidate, enough people voted for him that I have to accept that. 
And I can't even imagine a system that allows an elector to say he's not fit for office and therefore I'm not going to cast the vote for him, even though my state voted overwhelmingly for him. That That's that's terrifying to me. Um, I, this idea of overturning the popular vote, which has happened twice, as we've talked about just in the last few elections. Um, so I, I want to know, is there a way to make it fairer, to make it you know, or to change the role to be that of you will cast your ballot as those uh, that reflect the votes of the people and not to allow them the independence because that independence could have actually played into the hands of some of the lawyers' memos that Donald Trump got saying, hey, they can do this on their own. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. After, you know, I described at the outset the way that sort of the Trump legal team kind of worked assiduously to exploit all of these potential vulnerabilities or ambiguities or weaknesses in the complex scheme of presidential selection. Interestingly, Jill, the one you just described wasn't something that they deployed. They actually didn't seek to try to get Biden electors to switch and vote instead for Trump, which is, I think, a pretty interesting omission. Yeah. Now, we should say in 2016, there actually was a pretty concentrated effort Um an organization or sort of a loose affiliation of individuals that called themselves Hamiltonian electors actually did, in the reverse of what you're describing, try to get Trump electors to defect and to vote instead, either for Hillary Clinton or for some third party, mm. um, you know, seeking essentially to basically reclaim this kind of version of the Electoral College that I just described, which was this kind of independent body that would sort of stand between the people and the selection of a demagogue. And it was, of course, unsuccessful. There weren't, there were a number of defections, but actually only um, Hillary Clinton electors who voted for someone else seeking to foment this wave of defections, but the wave never came. So um, this idea of faithless electors, electors who don't yeah. vote consistent with, you know, state popular votes has sort of been in the ether for, you know, most of American history. It's never been an outcome determinative force in American elections. Um, and the Supreme Court in a case called Chiafalo a couple of terms ago actually, you know, basically rejected this kind of vision of elector independence that I just described, um, which, you know, there was an argument that the Constitution gives electors the right to vote their conscience, whatever the state popular vote reflects. Um, and the court rejected that vision of electors, but basically gave states leeway to either, you know, bind by law electors to vote for, you know, the individual that the state population has voted for, or not to impose any penalties on electors, but, you know, to remove them and replace them um, if they wanted to. But so this kind of vision of, you know, truly independent electors who could vote however they wanted to has never really been reflected in our practice of presidential selection. But there's lots of other, you know, reasons to find the, the system alarming, even apart from that. Well, but based on what you've said earlier in this show already, was the Supreme Court right in understanding what the framers intended? If, if in fact, the history that you've cited says they did see this as an independent um, exercise of judgment by smarter people. And of course, this is at a time when education wasn't universal, when communications weren't universal. And so that, you know, the information that you got in the West of what was then America versus the East might be different. Um, but even still, if that's the history, was the Supreme Court wrong? 
I don't think so. I think actually, so it's a Justice Kagan opinion and it's unanimous opinion. And I actually think it basically says, maybe that was what some of the framers thought. Um, and as I said, I think that's one of, but not the only kind of themes that you find in the historical record. But even if it's true that that was the kind of original conception, our practice over 230 years has not has completely overtaken that original vision. And now the idea of popular sovereignty is so deeply rooted in our constitutional tradition that it can't be that these electors have a constitutional right to ignore the will of the people. So it actually strikes, I think, an important note of popular sovereignty in rejecting this vision of elector independence. Um, so I actually do think that, you know, the kind of reading of the full historical record as opposed to just this kind of founding era snippet of time is actually refreshing in the context of a court yeah. that is often really selective in its kind of reading and deployment of history. And so there, I think actually it is right that the entirety of our constitutional history right. and tradition uh, supports this, you know, vision of electors that actually, you know, again, it's pretty anachronistic if they're not doing an independent exercise of judgment, why we have them at all is a burning question, quite honestly. Um, but I think it's probably right in terms of what it says about our constitutional history and practice. Right. Um, and of course, we know the risk of the Supreme Court reading history based on Dobbs, where I think they got history wrong. So um, I'm glad in this case, maybe they ignored whatever history there was that would have supported that, what I think is terrible viewpoint, and said, the reality is we have always had people elect the president, and that's how it should be. And I, I think while most Americans don't have very good answers to many history or constitutional questions, if you ask people, do you think that you elect the president, they would say yes. And they might not even know there's an intermediate step, which is what happens on January 6th. Right. Um, and, and we've already talked about how the electors are allocated. Um, do you think that in light of the new differentials that we have, which maybe weren't foreseen, that that's a fair way to allocate them? Well, of course, there's, it just, you know, the system, as does the United States Senate, you know, hugely benefits rural and less populated states as compared to, you know, densely populated and high population states like New York, where I live, or California. Um, so absolutely, it increases the political power of individuals in kind of rural and less populated states. But it also does, you know, something or a number of things to distort our politics and our political geography more broadly, right? Like it elevates the importance of a subset of states, and it's not always the same subset of states, but there is, you know, five or six or seven or eight or 10 states that are genuinely contested in every presidential election cycle. And because you're not fighting for every vote, if you're running for president, you're just fighting, you know, you have safe, you know, at least right now in our politics, you've got California, if you're running as a Democrat, you've got Texas, you know, maybe Texas is moving, but not yeah. that fast if you're running as a Republican. Um, so there's a subset of states that are genuinely contested. And those are the states where you spend all of your time. Okay. Those are the states whose interests you elevate on the campaign trail. And that has real material consequences in terms of the kinds of, you know, sort of political issues that are salient that presidential candidates and then presidents talk about. I mean, Larry Lessig has a great example, which is, I, the, the, the figure is not at my fingertips, but many, many more Americans work in solar energy than in coal, just like, you know, many, many more. And you never know that from our presidential politics and presidential right. discourse because Pennsylvania and, you know, there are a number of, of, of states in which coal remains, you know, sort of relevant and 
states in which solar is significant are states like California, or the most of the solar sector is based are states like California, which are not contested in presidential elections. So it focuses the attention of you know, electorate and the presidential candidates on a subset of issues that aren't reflective of the issues right. important to the country writ large, where if you had to actually compete for every vote, you would talk about issues that matter to voters in California and that matter to voters in Texas. And that has hugely distorting effects on our politics kind of broadly. So there, I think, are the two distinct problems. Again, there are many more, but yeah. it's it's both the elevating of less populated rural states in their outsized importance in the college and also just elevating the subset of states that are genuinely contested in every cycle. I think those are two extremely good reasons why it seems to me to be very undemocratic. Um, another undemocratic aspect of this is what happens if there should be a tie in the electoral college. And you want to talk about that? Because that seems undemocratic for sure. Sure. So the way the Constitution sort of sets forth a solution to this. And it was, you know, anticipated that there would be a tie or there wouldn't be a winner in the Electoral College somewhat routinely, is that, you know, the election then goes to the House of Representatives. But rather than each representative in the House getting one vote, the way the voting works is each state votes as a delegation for president and whoever gets the most you know, state delegation votes. So California, for example, gets one vote. New Hampshire gets one vote. Rhode Island gets one vote. So again, there is this kind of anti-democratic problem in that, you know, the states, it's not actually the population being proportionally represented in this selection process. It's, it's each state qua state, even though this is the house in which population, as opposed to a set number of representatives, is supposed to de determine representation. Um, and so that's the mechanism that the Constitution sets forth. So that is, again, another place where you have these distortions um, that can creep into the process. And again, as I said at the outset, we came pretty close in 2020 to have this uh, election, yes. you know, tied in the House and then thrown, uh, tied in the Electoral College and then thrown to the House, where, because Republicans controlled more state delegations than Democrats, Donald Trump would have been elected again. Okay. Terrifying prospect that means we will get to in this show things that can be done to um, alter the current setup to make it fairer. But I, I know Victor had a question he wanted to ask right now. Sure. No, so it seems like there's so many problems with the Electoral College, and I'm wondering if there are any, uh, what, are, what are some of the arguments that maybe Republicans or people who defend their Electoral College use now? Are there any? Um, you know, I, you're asking me to channel arguments that I don't really endorse. Um, but I will say there, there's, they, you know, they will make the historical argument that, look, the framers put this in the Constitution for a reason. They expressly considered and rejected popular election of the president. And that's a choice that should be respected, that the kind of Hamiltonian vision of this body of individuals who exercise, you know, some degree of filtering or control. Now, I think they have to grapple with the fact that that actually doesn't reflect the reality of our current practice. Um, but I would say that is one. Two, I think they would argue that it's, you know, it's mostly worked pretty well. Query whether you actually agree with that. But I've heard this argument made that it has basically produced, you know, competent uh, statesmen at the helm. Um, I'm, you know, not going to editorialize there, but that's an argument that I have heard. Um, there's also the argument that, yes, there is an, a kind of outsized weighting of the interests of voters in battleground states, but 
that's not a fixed set of states, right? There's, you know, a degree of dynamism in terms of what states are genuinely in play and competitive every four years. And so, you know, different states cycle through. Look, New York was the consummate swing state, actually. And, you know, the last time we came pretty close to abolishing the Electoral College was in 1970, an amendment passed the House, but then died in the Senate. But New York and representatives from New York were actually major obstacles because swing state status was really important to New Yorkers. So, you know, this is not something that in which the kind of political identity of the players is necessarily fixed. Um, and so I think that's an argument that's deployed. And there's also an argument that you hear, which is that, well, the alternative would be so unwieldy. If we had genuinely national elections, what would that mean about states' ability to set qualifications for voting right now, you know, like access to the vote really varies from state to state, right? The way that states administer their elections varies dramatically. If we had a genuinely national presidential election, would that mean you had to have one single agency that would administer, that would administer elections uh, nationwide? You know, would that be difficult? We've not had experience doing that. I, I don't find those terribly persuasive. I think you could either have the federal government do that, or I think maybe more likely kind of keep decentralization in election administration and just have every state count up the votes and then add those together. And so that doesn't strike me as an insurmountable obstacle. So I've both offered some arguments and then uh, uh, responded to them. I hope that's okay, Victor. But that I think yeah. is the kind of general, you know, sort of, but it's mostly sort of the, un, you know, it, it's a problem. This, this would be a solution in search of a problem and we don't know what comes next. And so kind of pointing to kind of alarmism or uncertainty about what you would replace the college with, I think is a kind of a type of argument that you encounter more often than really in kind of affirmative and enthusiastic defenses of the college itself. Yeah, well, I'm definitely not persuaded by the arguments for the Electoral <laughs> College, but let's maybe focus on some of the things that you mentioned in your Atlantic piece and that we mentioned a little bit before, but let's drill into some of those. And that's the, you mentioned the mechanisms and the timelines that are in place within the Electoral College, um, those crucial moments after Election Day that um, normal people probably wouldn't really think twice about, but under Trump, uh, we really paid attention to them. So let's walk through maybe the first date or provision that you talk about, and that's the Safe Harbor Day. Um, so talk a little bit more about that and what happens usually on that day. Sure. So, you know, states sometimes take, especially if it's a close election, a couple of days, it could even be a week or so to actually count their ballots, right? And there's a good reason for that. You know, some states have absentee voting laws that allow the counting of absentee ballots that are postmarked by election day. So those can take like, you know, three, four, five days after election day to come in. Overseas voters, members of the military um, have you know, are also voting typically by mail and with different deadlines. So depending on how close an election is, it might take some time for a state to actually come up with its final number. And federal law contemplates that, right? Says there's going to be a period of time in which, you know, it's okay. States can take the time they need to figure out who won the election in that state. Um, it's also the case that sometimes there are challenges. There are recounts, there are lawsuits, right? Challenging various aspects of election administration. And that can all take some time to play out. Um, but federal law um, sets, you know, I think two December dates that are relevant in this regard. Um, one, a date on which the electors gather in each state and actually cast their votes for the winner of the state's popular vote, um, except again, Maine and Nebraska, which do it a little bit differently. Um, and there is a separate period that basically says if there is going to be a question about which slate of electors, if if there's, say, some dispute about who actually won in the state, 
Um, so long as the state has certified its slate of electors by this safe harbor date, that slate of electors will be deemed conclusive in the event that there is a dispute over who won the election in that state. So that sounds kind of complicated, but those are two important dates that the federal law, you know, parts of the statute called the Electoral Count Act, set forth. And you're beginning to see some of the complexity that I a little bit sort of glossed over in right. the at the outset. Um, and so those were both opportunities for the Trump legal team to exploit. So the first of these, the date on which electors gather in their states to actually formally cast their votes and then transmit those votes to the Capitol where they ultimately get counted. Um, in a number of states, basically sham electors, individuals without any legal authority under state law or otherwise, to essentially claim that they had the right to cast votes for Donald Trump, nevertheless sort of gathered and purported to do that. Some of them actually trying to memorialize these, you know, electoral votes on, you know, documents that, again, bore no kind of formal legal status under state law. So that was opportunity one. And then the existence of the safe harbor deadline, I think, was a reason that the Trump team really pursued you know, lawsuit after lawsuit in a number of states, basically seeking to delay the state certification of Joe Biden as the winner beyond the safe harbor deadline, which I think the Trump team believed would enable them to, you know, increase their chances of successfully challenging those Biden electors actually on January 6th, right, the sort of final stage of the Electoral College timeline. So just to clarify, I, th I think when you're talking about the um, electors meeting and voting and that there were some who met who weren't actually really elected, that's what we're talking about when we call them the fake elector slates, yeah, right? fake or okay. sham electors. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. I, I just wanted people to understand that's the shorthand. I think that people know it as. Go ahead, Vicky. Yeah, sorry. Fake electors. You're yeah, right. Okay, so that's... That's, I'm, I'm definitely grateful that this didn't work in 2020, but I'm wondering, you know, we're seeing so many people getting elected uh, on the state and local level who do have really um, kind of determinative uh, control over what happens uh, with elections. And I'm wondering what would have happened if they were successful or I guess now that they're deploying all these people to serve in positions like secretaries of state, could that happen if the right people are in place? I think you're right to be concerned about it, Victor. I, you know, I, I think it depends a lot on, you know, we've seen some, you know, kind of big lie adopters win in primary elections. We obviously need to see what happens in general elections, but um, they could be in a position, I think, to do very serious mischief in terms of delaying or even refusing to certify slates of electors. In a lot of states, it is, you know, either the governor or the secretary of state who has the power to certify or decline to certify, potentially even to seek to certify a different slate of electors that doesn't match what the state's voters actually expressed at the ballot box. Um, so I think that, you know, actors who are willing to disregard law and, you know, essentially thwart democracy if they are given these positions of power around the administration of elections. Um, and I think this is crucial if the election is close enough in one or more states. I mean, I do think that because at least as we saw things in 2020, what even the Trump team continued to try to do was to sow doubt, both so factual doubt and also to sort of seek to craft even very weak, but to craft legal arguments that could form the basis for 
their challenges. So even in, say, you know, Georgia, where you had, I think, the most kind of overt effort to basically ask the election officials, right, this is the, the Trump Raffensperger phone call, basically to say, can you just change the results, you know, in the finding of 11,000 plus additional votes? The, F, the request there was fairly explicit. But everywhere else, the kind of ask of many individuals in the Trump orbit of state officials was essentially, you know, can you announce or can we create you know, some real doubt about what happened in the election. And if if we can basically plausibly claim that it's just unknowable who won because, you know, some, for whatever reason, you know, fill in the sort of justification, I don't want to actually offer one that makes it sound more reasonable than it was. But, uh, you know, assume there's a genuine question about who won in this state. Well, then you have an argument on January 6th when it actually comes to you know, tallying up the final votes and declaring, in this case, of course, Joe Biden the winner, because that's the final stage in the Electoral College uh, timeline, this joint session of Congress at which the votes are opened. Um, and there's this passive construction that they shall be counted. And so how much power the vice president has, of course, and, you know, was, was, was a critical question. And of course, Trump urged Pence essentially to exercise unilateral authority to throw out slates uh, from several states that had voted for Biden. Um, but I think that all of that, you know, failed for a number of reasons. But one is that, you know, there were too many states, right? You didn't have to, you know, Trump would have had to be successful in, you know, minimum of, you know, depending on which states, there were three, four or five states in order for this to work on January 6th. And if every if we had actors in critical states in important roles vis-a-vis -vis the election and the election came down to one of those states, I think there's every reason to be really concerned about what might ensue. It's terrifying. And it means to me that we need to reform some of these processes. So, and there has been proposals. There's a proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act. Um, can you talk about some of the efforts at reform and talk about what you think are the best efforts at reform? What What's the best we can do? Sure. Um, so yeah, so there is a bipartisan uh, bill in the Senate, and I think there's a version in the House that is being worked up that would reform a number of aspects of the Electoral Account Act. Um, one is, you know, just to make clear what I think is already obviously true, but to make more explicit, which is that the vice president, you know, doesn't have the unilateral authority to reject slates of electors and that his is a, or hers is a, you know, ministerial role of opening and counting, but there's no independent authority beyond that with respect to the counting of votes. Um, there's also right now a very low threshold for raising an objection. A member of Congress in the joint session can raise an objection to a state's slate of electors. So there are, you know, proposals in the Senate bill and, and I think in the House bill that would raise the threshold, require a number of members of Congress to together object before such an objection will even be entertained in the joint session of Congress. Um, so I think those are kind of important and helpful fixes. Um, for what it's worth, if we're like thinking big, I think, and this is, you know, really directed to, you know, Victor and your generation, like abolition of the Electoral College, like should be an active agenda item. And I think that, you know, it would require the Constitution, it would require amending the Constitution, right, to get rid of the Electoral College. But that for all the reasons that we have just been talking about, there is not only no reason to, the, to retain the Electoral College, it is incredibly problematic, both from the perspective of the opportunities for exploitation, but in some ways more fundamentally from the perspective of, you know, our, our actual sort of democratic ideals and commitments that we retain this anachronistic, you know, entity. And 
I worry that for young people like you, Victor, you know, the idea of even amending the Constitution almost seems out of reach, right? Like, we haven't amended it in your lifetime. It was 1992 was the last time we amended the Constitution. Um, we have only a couple of times in American history gone this long without amending the Constitution. And I think it's not a sign of a healthy democracy if we just are unable to change our founding document like this. And so I actually, it's one of the reasons, this is like a little bit of a tangent, but it's one of the reasons I found the, you know, Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, revival effort in the last few years actually so heartening because it suggested a generation of young people all of a sudden were again focused on the possibility of amending the Constitution. I see, Jill, you're a fan of this. Like, do you agree with <laughs> that? That even if the ERA never becomes part of the Constitution, <laughs> it has galvanized people, again, to think about constitutional amendment. And that, I think, is really important. I, I am so happy to hear you say that because it is my new passion to make sure that the Equal Rights Amendment is not just talked about, but is passed. I've been Great. working on it since 1976 at the Democratic National Convention in New York. And honestly, I'm tired of fighting for this. And Dobbs proves that we need it and that there's no way around making women part of the Constitution. Yeah. And so, yes, I'm, I'm, we'll have to have you back to talk about that. <laughs> I would love to. And I'm so glad that yeah. you were focused on this because and I and, and do you agree that there's actually been like this sort of the seeing Illinois and Nevada and Virginia seeing their sort of revival in these states just in, you know, the post 2016, 2017 era has been, I think, incredibly heartening. This is an issue that people thought was just was, wasn't ever going to be going to go anywhere. It came close. It went off the rails. And that was that. But in fact, a new generation has basically suggested that we should, you know, dream big and hope again. Exactly. And, and I've been working with some lawyers in Illinois who have convinced me that the deadline isn't a deadline that's enforceable. And therefore, there have been 38 states who have and also that you cannot de- uh, you can't rescind you your can't ratification. Rescind, right. So uh -huh. no rescission, no deadline. 38 states have voted. Yeah, it so we is, have a 20th um, amendment. It's we in the have Constitution. It. And yeah. all that President Biden, should he happen to be listening to this intergenerational discussion, <laughs> all he has to do is send it to the archives and say, it is part of the Constitution, publish it. And then we have a 28th amendment and women will not be subjected to what we are now subjected to as unequal participants in our democracy. So yes, President Biden, do it. And we're trying to get a representative of the White House on this show to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment, um, because as I say, it is a new passion of mine. And I think Victor shares it. He, he gets it. And so you may be right that this is one of those intergenerational issues where actually Victor and I, and of course he's an old soul actually, right? Aren't you, Victor? You are. Sure. Um, yes. But he, he totally gets it. And well, he's totally in favor of passing this, but I'm sorry. We've gotten, I, Victor, did you have another question or? No, but, but I do have uh, a comment. I, I will just say just yeah. as I was researching about the Electoral College and everything that's wrong with it, I am surprised that there aren't more young people kind of taking to the streets and protesting this because it is, I think, Part of it might be because it's so hard to amend a constitutional amendment or add something to the Constitution. And so maybe that's a separate discussion we can have about how we can make that process easier and how we can, I guess, feasibly get rid of the Electoral College. Well, you know, unfortunately, it's right. Article 5 of the Constitution creates very, very high bars yeah. to amending the Constitution, yeah. and yeah. it does it by design, but it is not meant to be impossible to amend the document. And in other periods, we have successfully, you know, mobilized and done so. And so I, you know, I hope that this is something that, Victor, you know, you, you, you can 
Go tell your people. Right. <laughs> the arguments yeah. that were against, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment are so absurd and so ridiculous. You'll have to share a bathroom with a man. No, you don't have to. Women won't be drafted. Not so. I mean, there's just so many things that, based on my own experience as general counsel of the Army, for example, that I know are just not true and are hurting women. They are mostly hurting women. And yes, some benefits that women got may be abolished as a result, but that means that men will have those benefits. Not that they're going to go away for women. It's that men will also have them. So uh, anyway... Uh, I'm sorry to take us off track, but I do think they're right. No, I'm happy to be off track on this subject. (laughs) You can take me off track anytime. But we did want to turn our conversation to some questions about the current Supreme Court. And I think, Victor, do you want to start on that subject? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for such an enlightened conversation about the Electoral College. Um, Let's talk about the Supreme Court, because I've heard you give a very sobering picture on other podcasts. Notably, I listened to your one on Ezra Klein, and it really terrified me about the type of court we have. Some say it's a 3-3-3 court with Kagan, Sotomayor, and now Justice Jackson on the liberal end, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Roberts in the middle, and Barrow, Alito, and Thomas on the extreme right end. I'm wondering if that's how you view this court, too. I never really did, honestly, view this as a 3-3-3 court, and I don't think that there's been any evidence this term that that's the best way to think about it. I mean, I do think that it's the case that a kind of rotating cast of Roberts, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Barrett, one of those four, are occasionally persuadable on a topic. And sometimes two of them are. And if two of them are persuadable, then you just add them to, you know, previously Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan, and now, of course, Jackson, uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. Um, And, you know, you could potentially eke out a victory, but it's very rare. And it's, um, I think, much more common that either the six-member super majority, you know, conservative super majority, or the five-member conservative majority with Roberts concurring to say something slightly different, um, will basically do whatever they want. So if we're we're talking about overturning Roe in Dobbs, if we're talking about massively expanding Second Amendment rights in Bruin, if we're talking about really disabling environmental regulation and maybe regulation more broadly, um, you know, in the West Virginia case, it's, it's, you know, these are the most important cases of the term and in many terms, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. And in each of those cases, you know, when the chips are down, the conservatives stuck together. Now, it is true that Roberts wrote something different in Dobbs and would have said, well, we can uphold the Mississippi law without revisiting Roe and overturning Roe. But I think it's pretty clear that that was about the style of the opinion and the pace of the change more than the bottom line outcome. And that if it had been another term or two and the court had taken a couple of incremental steps, I I feel quite confident that Roberts would have been on board with the overruling of Roe. so I guess I just think, no, we don't really have a 3-3-3 court. We have a 6-3 court. And, you know, a couple of the members of the conservative block will sometimes defy expectations, but not in the big, big cases. Yeah. And you, you mentioned some of the big cases that so, I guess, perfectly capture just how significantly they impact democracy and fundamental rights. What's your takeaway from this court currently? And um, do you think this is just the beginning of what we're going to see from this court? You know, I do think that this court is sort of just getting started. I think that there, I I didn't know at the outset of this term whether having really consolidated power 
you know, for the first time in, in many years with a, you know, reliable conservative bloc. You had, you know, a Republican majority for many, many years. When I, you know, clerked on the court, there were many Republican appointees who, you know, defied the expectations of the president who, presidents who appointed them. I clerked for Justice Stevens, who was a Ford appointee, and the court was Justice Kennedy, um, you know, also conservative and Reagan appointee. Justice O'Connor had also Reagan appointee had just retired. These were all you know, David Souter, George H.W. Bush appointee. So plenty of justices have you know defied the expectations of the presidents who appointed them. So it's not that there were you know a majority of Republican justices uh, on this court, but this very kind of rock solid conservative uh, block. So I thought having you know finally achieved that long standing goal, the court, the majority on the court would move you know relatively cautiously or incrementally to change the law because they would fear a real loss of public confidence and support if they move too swiftly and in too many areas and change the law too dramatically. And I was frankly wrong. Like they've done, they've moved, I think, as quickly as possible in as big and bold a set of opinions as possible and across as wide a range of cases as possible. And I'm not sure a lot of our historical understanding about the court, you know, trying not to get too, too far out of step with popular opinion really hold with respect to this court. I think it's a very new court that, for reasons I'm not sure I fully understand yet, is not concerned about a loss of public legitimacy that might potentially lead to a loss of its own power. I mean, you look at recent polling on the Supreme Court, and it's at the lowest level since Gallup started asking people about whether they had any confidence in the Supreme Court. And you would think a court would take a look at that and say, well, maybe we better slow down or do things a little bit differently because the public is you know, losing confidence. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything. Um, so I guess we'll see whether next term reflects, you know, any kind of pumping the brakes. Um, but my instinct right now is that it won't and the court doesn't much care because it doesn't much fear any response from the political process. And I guess it's, you know, to Congress and the president and the American public to prove them wrong. Yeah, I think that they've adopted sort of the former President Trump attitude and that he can do no wrong, that his People will let him commit a murder on Fifth Avenue and take no consequences. And you've mentioned some, I mean, obviously Dobbs took away a 50-year right and proved the need for the ERA. Um, but it also foretells that same-sex marriage, contraception could be at risk. Uh, the West Virginia EPA case, of course, was damaging to our planet and to the world, but it is also not just in environmental because it sort of suggests that all administrative agencies could be cut down severely. And you didn't mention, but there were a lot in the area that I would call uh, First Amendment religion that are of grave concern to me because they seem to be very much establishment. Who cares? We can establish. Uh, you know, we can have praying coaches, we can have tuition, it's all okay. Um, so I am very concerned about what the next term is going to bring. And, uh, you know, Justice Breyer retired, but it, 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 and he's been replaced by someone who seems to be of the same mindset, so that I think that Justice Jackson will, it'll stay a 6-3. Um, but, and we've already seen her acting. Um, you know, she's already had, even though she basically is just on the court. Um, I, I wonder if we can see any prediction of whether she could possibly have any impact on how the court decides. I mean, look, you know, 
Justice White always said that every new justice makes a new court, right? So, and my old boss, Justice yeah. Stevens, would sometimes refer to the court as, you know, using the name of the most recent justice to join. So this is now the Jackson court. Um, and I think there's something to that. Every new justice really does change the dynamics. Um, and I think that, you know, she's likely to, she's extremely warm and personable, and she's likely to forge personal relationships, I think, with in particular the kind of newer members of the court. Um, but I don't have a lot of optimism that she's likely to fundamentally change, mm. you know, any of the math on the court. I think that, you know, Justice Breyer actually would kind of cross over in some, in particular, in some of these religious liberty cases that you just mentioned, Jill. Yeah. This term, actually the one that he wrote, which was, you know, found in favor of uh, a religious claimant that was the Boston case, not the prank coach case or the school funding case, but another religion case in which religion yeah. won. Um, but that was a unanimous opinion. But Breyer would often cross over actually and join the conservatives in voting in favor of religious uh, exercise claimants. I don't know if Jackson is going to do the same thing. You know, I could see her potentially siding with Sotomayor and, you know, Kagan sometimes would go with Breyer and sometimes with um, Sotomayor. So, so we will see yeah. sort of where she comes down in those cases. So the math on the margins might change, but the bottom line, sort of who wins and who loses, it's very difficult for me to see her fundamentally changing the math on the court. It, to me, to my mind, actually, the, a bigger question is whether these newer justices, we, we might see their views evolve, as we have historically seen with a lot of justices on the court, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett were relatively young when they joined the court, but so far there's no evidence that they are experiencing this sort of like movement or drift that historically yeah. justices on the court have experienced. The, the one thing I just want to say about the case that allowed tuition um, is that the state actually was really prepared and clever for seeing that this might happen, said, okay, well, we'll give tuition as long as you agree to all of the civil liberties, civil rights that we impose, and you will uh, not do anything to hurt someone because of their gender identity, for example. And the schools that had applied actually ended up turning down the money because they would not agree not to discriminate. So there are some solutions to terrible decisions at the Supreme Court, but we shouldn't have terrible decisions. No, and and honestly, like that's another, that is one of the next frontiers in terms of these religious liberty cases. So those schools that turn down the funds may turn around and file a lawsuit to suggest that a, a state requirement that they abide by generally applicable non-discrimination laws is itself an infringement of yeah. their religious liberty. And and we have we are already seeing cases along those lines, not out of Maine to my knowledge, but certainly that's where the funding yeah. case was out of. Um, but but absolutely, you know, these questions of religious entities and individuals seeking exemptions from generally applicable laws on the basis that those laws that require them not to discriminate violate their religious freedom. And we have a case like that already on the docket for next fall involving a, a website maker who doesn't want to you know, make websites for same-sex weddings. And, you know, so, so given the track record so far of religion winning before this court, I think it's very likely that's how that case will go. And, and that's deeply, deeply concerning from the perspective of, you know, residing in a pluralistic democracy in which people have historically understood that they actually just, you know, if you're going to do business in, you know, most states, you're going to have to abide by general just non-discrimination laws. I think all of a sudden that is in real question because of the composition of this court. Yeah. And we saw the court really focus on abortion rights for so long. They were successful with that. And now who knows, maybe, maybe this will be next. Is there anything else you think the right is going to focus on in the coming years, decades? Well, I mean, look, we have a big affirmative action case on the docket already scheduled for argument on Halloween. October 31st is when the court scheduled wow. it. So we have you know, cases out of Harvard and North Carolina in which this, you know, if, if 
my predictions about kind of how maximalist this court remains are right. Um, there's a very good chance that the court declares that any race-conscious admissions policies in higher education violate the Constitution, and that would require overturning case out of Michigan that allowed, under some limited circumstances, the consideration of race in college admissions um, and, or, you know, higher ed admissions. And, you know, that would be, would both be overturning an important longstanding precedent and it would be a sea change in terms of our understanding of the Constitution. And so I think, and I think that's not like, you know, speculative, that's going to be argued in just a couple of months. So it's very on deck. That's horrifying. Well, hopefully the Supreme Court can look at what happened in Kansas a couple of weeks ago and I don't know, see what happens when when voters actually pay attention. Um, so we always like to end the podcast with one final question, and um, usually it relates to advice for young people. And we talked a little about what young people should be doing now, but what do you say to young people who are living in this world where so much is um, kind of problematic, to say the least? I mean, I do think that the kind of talk of constitutional amendment is one thing that I would say, which is that, you know, think big about how to change the system. And it, you know, and, and the Kansas example, so we had on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, a group of organizers who had been really involved in the effort in Kansas. Um, and a lot of them talked about some of these mobilization efforts, just starting with like a couple of people at their local library, just sort of saying like, what do we do? Um, and so I think that do not underestimate your power to just join your voice and your energy and your time if you're willing to knock doors or make phone calls or whatever it is you're willing to do. Do not underestimate the power of that. And if your state has, you know, local or state elections coming up, and in virtually every state there is, there are elections, really important ones for state Supreme Court, something like 33 of the 50 states have state Supreme Court races on the ballot this November. Some of those state courts will be deciding fundamental rights questions um, under state constitutions now that the U.S. Supreme Court has overruled Roe. So states may still protect the right to abortion, but it really depends who sits on state Supreme Courts, how some of those cases uh, will come down. So I would say that, you know, a understanding that if you are, you know, going to care about sort of the world you live in, it's going to be there's sort of a long fight ahead and, you know, not to expect anything to change overnight, but to understand that change sometimes takes time, but is very possible. Um, but also to kind of, you know, commit to focusing on engaging in politics um, and, you know, whatever kind of activism feels right to you, um, if you want to make change, there are lots of avenues to do that. So I, I, I sort of, I guess that, you know, I, I think that's the most important advice right now. It's in some ways, you know, kind of evergreen, but I think it's especially important right now. Thank you for that. I think voting and getting involved in politics is something that all young people should be doing and being involved in getting the ERA to be um, part of our constitution, even if it's just by political pressure on the president who could make it happen, um, I think are, are great things. And man, I've learned so much and enjoyed this conversation with you so much. I cannot thank you enough for having taken the time to be with us. And we hope you'll come back and talk about more again. Jill, Victor, thank you so much for having me. I would be delighted to come back. Just let me know. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Kate Shaw. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you're as alarmed by the Electoral College as we are. We hope that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and follow us wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you follow your podcasts, we are there. And be sure to also leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts as that, as that helps other people find this podcast. 
podcast a lot. Thank you so much again, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. <laughs>